Spook Squad listeners, welcome to another episode of the podcast. My name is Allie. And I am Dan. Hooray! Your first intro to the podcast. And how did it feel? It felt good. I'm happy to be starting things off as we dig into today's episode because it truly is a big one. Yes, indeed. And I think it's fair of me to say that Allie and I are absolutely straining at the bit to talk about this one. So I say we just dive right into it. Let's do it. Today, we are going to be talking about the second feature-length film from Jennifer Kent, The Nightingale, which is now in limited release around the country. Now, we've been talking about this film basically since we started the podcast. Actually, Jennifer Kent's name has come up many times on the cast for many reasons, and I have not shied away from expressing that I am a fan of hers, both creatively and how she seems as a person. So when I heard about The Nightingale making rounds at film festivals last year and shocking all in its wake, it quickly became one of my most anticipated films of the year. And mine too, although I'm happy I knew as little as I did going into it. True, but as we discussed, I think it's important that even in the pre-spoiler section of this episode, we go into a little bit of the, the certain details of the film so that to some degree audiences know what to expect. I think for this film in particular, that may be very important. Agreed. My experience was unusual for sure. But we're going to get into all of that. Yes, yes, for sure. But uh, there are a couple things to discuss before we start just diving into the film. Definitely. How should we do this? Well, I wanted to start up top by just talking about Jennifer Kent a bit. Good idea. I mean, we have a bit in the past, but we really should set the stage for the episode this way. Yes, because I I think that gives you a very interesting lens through which to view the film. Well, as many people know at this point, Jennifer Kent is an Australian director who made waves in 2014 with a film called The Babadook, a horror film with which many folks in our audience are already familiar. It's a tale about a supernatural storybook creature that haunts a single mother and her son after the death of her husband. Yeah, at at this point, The Babadook is well on its way to becoming a modern horror classic, and part of that may be the meme status of an LGBTQ figure, but it really all stems from this wonderfully directed story about grief and motherhood and familial hardship and mourning. It's ultimately about a lot of things, and that strong emotional core is what leads many to group it into the movement of what some call elevated horror. Mm -hmm. But Ken's journey to making this film was not an easy one. She started off as an actress, but was frustrated when she wasn't getting the kind of work she'd hoped for and eventually decided to move to the other side of the camera. Mm -hmm. And as we've said before, it's at this point that she wrote to Lars von Trier, the famous Danish director, infamous, let's say, and she asked to study under him because she saw that opportunity as better than film school would be. Yep, and she got to do it too. He took her on as a production assistant on the film Dogville. Yeah, a brutal watch, that one. But uh, while The Babadook has some wonderful moments of cinematography, uh, The Nightingale definitely shows us some of that Von Trier influence a little more, uh, albeit in a more feminist and Jennifer Kent way. Yes, because, okay, I believe now is an okay time to say it. Mm -hmm. The Nightingale is a film which is truly unflinching in its portrayals of violence and cruelty. And it may very well be one of the most difficult films of the year to get through as a result. Jennifer Kent pulls absolutely no punches in her sophomore film, but absolutely none of it is exploitative or without a purpose. 
as tough as it may be to swallow. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. Let's give some context and setting for those who are unfamiliar with the film. Uh, The Nightingale takes place in the early 1800s, actually, around 1820s to be exact. Uh, It takes place during the British colonization of an Australian island called Tasmania, you may have heard of. Uh, British soldiers stationed on that island are very nearly given free reign to basically kill the native indigenous peoples of the island, steal their land, abuse women. But this is a real historical event. It, it really happened, and it was called the Black Wars. Yes, and included in this abuse is an Irish former convict named Clare, who worked as something of an indentured servant to a soldier named Hawkins and his crew of soldiers. She cleans and serves, and at night, sings traditional ballads for the soldiers. She is our titular nightingale, working for her freedom, as well as that for her husband and infant daughter. Yeah, so before going any further into the plot or into analysis or anything, there are a couple things that we need to unpack here. Okay. I say that we start with the easier of the two first. Sounds good to me. Okay, so Jennifer Kent, director of The Babadook, as we said, to take five years and for this to be the movie that you make, this is the second project from you after that smash hit first film. It's incredible. It's inspiring to me, honestly. It really is. I mean, let's unpack it. You're right. We've talked about this in the past. We know for a fact Jennifer Kent was approached by Blumhouse for countless projects. Yeah. Basically given total control to choose anything she wanted, and she turned them down. Mm -hmm. The truth is, she probably received countless offers like that from countless studios. Yes, and in fact, there were rumors that Kent was one of the people who was offered to direct the Captain Marvel movie once upon a time. I totally believe it. The Babadook made Kent one of the most sought-after directors in the world especially for horror and genre films. Yeah, and honestly, can you blame anyone? I mean, of course she was that (laughs) sought after. We all saw what she could do, and we wanted more. Hell, I wanted more. So I don't fault anyone for taking that career path at all. Like, for example, Alexander Aja. He makes Autanchon, then he gets a major studio, and he makes The Hills Have Eyes remake. Jordan Peele, he makes Get Out. Then Us comes out two years later. Midsommar came out not even a year after Hereditary. Fast turnaround, it it can be great if it's done right. Yeah, and even the other side of it, like, for example, Lee Janiak, who wrote and directed Honeymoon, another great female director, another talent. Mm-hmm. She went on to direct a little TV, and now she's got that R.L. Stein adaptation in the works. There is nothing wrong with that path, and that is what a lot of people work towards. Exactly, and all of this is simply to say that Jennifer Kent made a deliberate choice to go with none of those options. She did not take any kind of easy or pre-established path. She did not even make the financially sensible choice to just make another horror movie that would satiate horror fans like us. No. Instead, she spent years meticulously researching the dark, difficult history of her own country. And that is what she chooses to portray. Now, that is what she chooses to make her second film about. And I mean... What can you even say? She's a badass. There is no question. No question. This is a deliberate artistic choice and a brave one, considering how challenging this film is. Yes, and we're going to have to talk about that aspect of it for sure. But uh, first, I was hoping that we could talk about some of these quotes that we have uh, from interviews with Jennifer Kent, because I I think that they provide some important context as well as just shine a light on some interesting aspects of the production of this film. Sure. I've actually got one I'd like to read that fits into that category. Please do. Well, 
One of the key aspects of this film that we haven't yet really discussed is its portrayal of the Tasmanian Aboriginal peoples. One of our main characters, Billy, who, whom Claire teams up with to help guide her through the wilderness, is an Aboriginal man, and the culture plays a prominent role in this story, to say the least. Absolutely. As much as this story is about the character of Claire, it is just as much or arguably even more so about the Aboriginal people. Exactly. And as a white woman, Kent was very aware of the importance of doing this the right way. And she has said that she never even considered it without consulting actual Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. I'll read the quote here. In an interview with Don Kay for denofgeek.com, Kent said, Aboriginal history is passed down by oral tradition, so you're not going to find the depth of it in history books. Plus, history is written by the victors, as they say, and also written by men largely. So you have to really do the research and really look for this stuff. Mm. She continues by saying, In regards to the Aboriginal story, I relied heavily on the living descendants of Tasmanian Aboriginal people who were around at the time. I would never have made the film without genuine and ongoing Tasmanian Aboriginal consultation and collaboration. That came about in the form of Uncle Jim Everett, who was a Tasmanian Aboriginal elder, a political activist, a poet, and a storyteller in his own right. I approached him about this film, and he came on board because he felt its importance. He knew that the story had never been told, and it was time for people to hear it. I owe him the film, and it wouldn't exist without his involvement. Wow. I Think about this, dude. Allie, great quote choice. She Thank really you. did collaborate directly with Aboriginal people, and I mean on everything. And think about this. There's no books to read on this. You could only learn by listening to someone tell you this story. The way the campfires looked in this film, the jewelry that people wore, clothing, songs, body paint, everything, the language that the character Billy speaks in this film. This is the first time it has ever appeared in a feature film. The first time ever. Wow. Think about that. This is all from consulting with the Aboriginal people, and the film is all the better for it. This is a story that has largely gone untold, but it's history. And Jennifer Kent did precisely the right thing by getting the history from the perspective of the oppressed and the marginalized. Absolutely. And it seemed to make a huge impact on her. In an interview with IndieWire, she said... It's honestly been the joy of my life, the most precious thing for me, creatively and as a person, to learn more about that culture. It's 60,000 years old. If a culture can survive for that long and keep the land that they live in pristine and surviving, there's got to be some wisdom there. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely true and that she's right. But the truth is that telling that story... The story of this culture, of that war, of, of what really happened, it, it's not easy. No, not at all. Because, I don't know, I'd like to think that even with the censored, dumbed-down version of colonization we get taught in our history classes, most people know it wasn't good. Mm. Most people get that there was death and suffering and maybe worse than that. But seeing it, really seeing the reality of what that was what that was like for people, for the marginalized. That is what makes this film so difficult to watch. Absolutely. And and, and this is what Ali and I were talking about earlier. But stuff that we're going to need to unpack about this film before getting into the spoiler section at all or talking about the film more, stuff that is important for some folks to know just going into this film. 
Yes, and I also have quotes from interviews with Jennifer Kent on this subject as well, because I thought it was important. Yeah, excellent. I I think we should definitely get into those to offer context, but let's just say it plainly so that people will understand what this movie is and what they're getting into when they see it. Agreed. So we've been talking and talking in circles around this, hinting at it and all that, but the truth is, look, The Nightingale is is very difficult. It's a very difficult film to watch in some ways. We said it was unflinching and we were not lying or exaggerating. The Nightingale seeks to show you the true horrors of British British colonialism and it succeeds. But as Ali and I said, the reality is very hard to swallow. Now, yes, there is violence and abuse at all levels, in all ways in this film. Yes, there is absolutely sickening racism and shocking images of indigenous peoples being killed or abused, but what people have been talking about the most about this film, by far, is the portrayal of sexual assault in the film, because it is present, and it has caused a lot of controversy around this film. Quite a lot indeed. Many screamings Screenings. Many screenings of this film had walkouts during those scenes or people audibly protesting. After a screening at the Venice Film Festival, this is true by the way, one journalist got up in the crowd and screamed at Jennifer Kent, calling her a whore. Dude. And saying something like she should be ashamed of herself. That is seriously unreal, especially considering the way that assault is portrayed in this film. And the character of Claire herself is called a whore so many times in the film as a horrible, degrading insult. For that journalist to use it in that way? I know, but she went on to win the special jury prize at the festival, so that guy can go fuck himself. Yeah, seriously. But honestly, you're right. I, the assault is so shocking. It's created a bit of a cloud of controversy around the film. Like the New York Times, in addition to a proper review of the film, they published a whole separate article calling, uh, it was it was called uh, Female Directors Choosing to Portray Rape in Their Films, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was a whole separate article, and, and I, I couldn't believe it. it. But to be fair, it was a pretty nuanced take, you know, no finger-wagging, anything like that. And I'm almost glad it's starting some important conversations, but I, I really do worry that it distracts from the film itself and what it's ultimately trying to say. I think that's why we need to dig into it a bit. I have quotes, like I said, but I just wanted to say first, if you are triggered by images or portrayals of sexual assault, I strongly recommend you do not see this film. Good point. Many film festival screenings of this film literally came with trigger warnings. The sexual assault scenes are very rough, and Ken openly said that she filmed these scenes deliberately to be from the victim's perspective, so there's an extra reason why it's so effective but also so necessary to warn folks. Yeah, but I just want to say that these scenes, it's not gratuitous at all. It's not exploitative in any way, not the way I see it, honestly. It's horrible to watch, of course. It's horrifying. It's awful. But I cannot say it is without a purpose. As hard as that is to say for me, Jennifer Kent wanted this film to be historically accurate, and that was the true horror of that time period, of that place, the reality of living as a woman in that space. It was true horror. Let me read these quotes because it's basically everything you're saying. In an interview with Rachel Handler of Vulture, Kent said of those scenes, I don't see those scenes as rape scenes. I mean, that language sort of irks me a little because it's not a rape scene. It's a scene of someone's soul being destroyed. 
If you look at any rape scene in cinema, you will see women's naked bodies. That, for example, for me was a no-go. I didn't want to look at it from the male gaze. And then in IndieWire, she continued, Rape and sexual violence is at an epidemic proportion throughout the world, she said. Turning away like that's somehow respectful is not getting us anywhere. And there it is. There it is. It's true. This is when being unflinching as a filmmaker, being willing to push audiences' limits in this way, this is when it really counts. This is what that is all about, telling this story, which, again, may be Kent's story, but it is based on research and history. Telling this story in a respectful way means not pulling punches and showing us the horror of what happened and what people were actually put through. Additionally, as you said earlier, this film does not use any type of violence exploitatively at all. It is always portrayed as horrible, brutal, dark, and haunting. Exactly, and I would argue that's that's one of the main points of the film, if we're being honest. In, in many ways, this film is the opposite of a film that we reference actually a lot on the podcast, a film called Revenge, uh, directed by Coralie Fargiat, an ultra-violent desert-setting so-called rape-revenge movie with tons of bloody retribution uh, that we as an audience we're, we're seething for in that film. And... That's not to say that there is anything wrong with a movie like that or movies like that. I I love that film personally, and I think stuff like that, it provides us with a sort of cultural catharsis in a way, you know, like feeling helpless and overwhelmed by the concept of sexual assault or rape. You know, it can be physically, psychically, you know, satisfying to see such a visceral reaction taken by survivors on screen in this way. So there is a purpose to stuff like that. But the Nightingale, as much as we may want it to be a rape-revenge story as an audience, it's it's just not that. It's not interested in being what anyone wants it to be. It has a hard point to make, maybe a few hard points to make. Absolutely. And I would argue that one of those points is how violence begets more violence. Mm-hmm. There is a price that you pay for trying to alleviate your pain by inflicting more pain on others. Mm-hmm. And this film argues that it's a personal or psychological price, but also a cultural one. Literally, violence perpetuates further violence in this film in a seemingly never-ending cycle. Right, and a lot of the film is helplessly watching that cycle get perpetuated as an audience and almost rooting for that cycle to be perpetuated as well. But the Nightingale, it gives us no such easy answers, you know, and... Do you mind if I read this quote from Jennifer Kent real quick? Actually, I I think it may help me make this point that we seem to be trying to make about using intense or extreme themes in cinema. Go right ahead. Okay. Uh, So again, in an interview with uh, denofgeek.com, Kent said this about the film. She said, even though the film and the history that I explore in the film is real and the film is historically accurate, it deals with a story that becomes, by virtue of it being set in the past, something of a myth. And by that, I don't mean that it's an untrue story. I mean something that's very true, but that speaks to a universal human condition. You don't have to know about Australian history to understand what's going on. That's really interesting. What do you get from that exactly? Well, 
I I think she's absolutely correct. You know, I've read a couple other reviewers refer to the film as, you know, like, quote unquote, meant to be read as allegory or something close to that. And even though it's based in history, I absolutely get that. You know, the suffering, the emotional arcs of these characters, the journey towards imperfect redemption, the messy realities of suffering and life, of being marginalized, of being othered, of losing your home and, and people, of losing everything. These themes... These are just human themes, and it's so damn sad to say, but as intense and foreign as parts of this film may seem, it's it's not like we can't say that these themes don't ring with some sort of relevance and truth in our world today, right? Of course. Jennifer Kent said so herself. And I think that sometimes, in order to portray these things with justice, to really make this difficult point the right way, in a way that acknowledges the seriousness and yes, the horror of what's being shown, I think sometimes in order to do that, you can't hold back. You can't pull punches or dance around it because that does it disrespect in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And Kent even said that based on her research, she had to tone things down. Can you believe that? She said she had to tone things down. She said to truly portray the full extent of the horrors would have been unbearable. I believe it. But but the film, despite, it still makes its point. It doesn't need to go that far. It still makes its point. And one thing that we haven't touched on yet is, yes, like all these intense themes are present in the film. Yes, this film can be hard to watch or get through at certain times. But at its core, there is a true beauty to the story that is just as much the point of the narrative as the violence we're being shown. And that beauty is really what makes this film just work. No question. Again, to quote Jennifer Kent, she wanted to make a story about how love or friendship could exist in such a time of oppression and hardship. And like you said, that's really the core of the film. Although again, like everything in this film, it's hard won and it doesn't Mm. give it to you easily. No one will soon be comparing this film to Green Book or anything of the sort. Yeah, good point. A film that gives easy, comfortable answers on racism, friendship, and being an ally. Instead, Nightingale tells a story of not even bonding through shared trauma, but bonding as people who have experienced trauma, a bond shared through survivors. Exactly. Exactly. And for that reason, I feel like the tone of this film is justified. Yeah. And on that note, I feel like we should maybe wrap up our pre-spoiler section and move on to some spoilers for the rest of the episode. Agreed. Any final thoughts? Well, all right, yes. Uh, For the people who have not yet seen this film, who are on the fence about it and just listening to this pre-spoiler section, uh, you know, I know we've thrown a lot of information at you thus far, but let me just sum it all up as briefly as I can because I I think it's important. Uh, The Nightingale is a harrowing film at times. It is very dark, and yes, it uses extreme themes, but it's never exploitative, and it really truly is with purpose because... This is based in history, tragic, horrifying history. Yeah, but it's history nonetheless. And what's more, it's history with which many of us are unfamiliar. And in addition to kind of educating through us, like educating us through this kind of shocking wake-up call of sorts, you know, Jennifer Kent has also many sad, beautiful things to say in this film. And we would all do well to listen to them. And this film, I gotta say... You know, it's an experience, and it's one that I deeply appreciated, as challenging as it was. I I can't give Jennifer Kent enough credit for taking that time to accomplish what she really accomplished here. I I really hope this film gets the praise it deserves and the attention it deserves. 
I cannot recommend it highly enough to those who are willing to be challenged by it, you know? Honestly, I agree. I thought the film was beautiful, moving, very often heart-wrenching, but I was so glad I had experienced it by the time the credits rolled. It may be cruel and sad at times, but I would say it's one of the best films of the year. Yes, I completely agree. So, that's our non-spoiler section thoughts on the film. Time to get into... Spoiler section! How should we do this? I think we... The only thing we can do, really, is go through this bit by bit. Just focus on one detail and then move on to the next. That way we avoid just kind of going over the plot in order or something like that. Well, should we do a deeper dive into the plot? I mean, I guess if they're listening to the spoiler section, they know it already. Yeah, but uh, what if they haven't seen it, but they just want it spoiled anyway? Does that person exist? Good point. Should we get into the plot a little bit for this hypothetical person? I I think we should. Here at Spook Squad, you know, we are all about those hypothetical people. <laughs> well then, shout out to you, hypothetical person. <laughs> okay, okay. So, the plot. All right, as we said earlier, story centers around Claire, Irish indentured servant singing for the mid-level British commander Hawkins. First off, the performances in this film are incredible. Isling Franciosi, I believe is her name, and Sam Clayton as Claire and Hawkins, respectively. They are both incredible. Oh, definitely. And with very difficult material. They really commit and bring so much dynamic to their characters. Well, I guess it's time to talk about some of that dynamic, huh? All right. Dan, do you want to talk about the heavy stuff that happens early on? Sure. Let's just kind of get into it so that we can move on from it and into other stuff about the movie. All right. Well, I'll do the lead up. Claire and her husband both believe that she has earned her freedom from Hawkins, and they both plan to confront him about it. Meanwhile, Hawkins is awaiting a review from a higher-ranking officer to see if he can transfer to a new base, with a more prestigious title. Long story short, the confrontations cause Hawkins to lose his chance at that title, and, seething with bitterness, he seeks to make them pay. Now, before we get into this scene, I, I just want to say how effective this bit is. I, I, you know, I read this in AV Club from A.A. A. Dowd, kind of a love him or hate him writer. You know, he wrote that that scene, that scene shows quote, how weak men pass their frustrations down, punishing those with less power for the sins of their abusers, end quote. And that, that is Hawkins getting punished by the lieutenant. And th honestly, it's so many men in this movie. It's the source of so much cruelty. Absolutely. That's a great quote. But the scene... All right, yeah. Okay, all right. So, so right in the beginning of the film... There are two awful scenes of Claire being sexually assaulted by Hawkins. The second is an almost unbelievable act of cruelty in which Hawkins rapes Claire in front of her husband while her infant daughter screams in the background. Before another soldier rapes her as well, both her, her husband, well, excuse me, both her husband and her baby are killed right in front of her. It's, of course it's horrible and hard to get through, my heart felt like it was falling through my chest during this scene, but I cannot stress enough that it is not meant to be gratuitous, and it really isn't as horrible as it is. 
but it is the inciting event of the film for sure. Yeah, and the directing here just makes it just makes everything. Mo- most of the scene is just a close-up of everyone's faces, which is a te- uh, technique that's used a lot in this film. Uh, Claire Hawkins, her husband, the soldiers, you know, at one point we even get a really chilling, hard-to-watch POV shot from Claire's perspective, you know, and uh, the dark, flame-lit lighting in that room, you know, it contributes to this grim feeling it's a tightrope act of directing but it works you know the scene is effective but like you said not exploitative exactly i also want to mention this film is presented in a squarish aspect ratio and that really affects how we see the film that is a great point ali can you talk about that a bit sure so quite simply instead of being shown to us in standard movie widescreen This film is presented through a square, as if through a classic 4x3 television. Mm -hmm. So these close-up face shots, which compose so much of the film, they really are framed just so, so that we really focus on this specifically framed image. Yeah, I completely agree. And also later, uh, when Claire goes through the woods to pursue Hawkins after this incident, Uh, with the intention of getting revenge or something it seems like she doesn't even know she does so by taking off through thick and confusing woods and a threatening wilderness landscape right just tasmania you know wild tasmania and and you know we don't really get any sense of the sprawling nature of these woods or anything how large they are or the mountainscapes these huge mountain ranges we don't get a feel for how big they are because of this square aspect ratio things always feel claustrophobic and threatening thanks to something as simple as just a square view it's really kind of brilliant in its subtlety if you ask me i would agree well since we're in the woods now how about we talk a bit about the dynamic between billy and claire because she meets him to help her through the wilderness and track hawkins yes exactly and and, you know maybe we haven't said this yet you know they don't really get along in the beginning actually and claire is pretty overtly and horribly racist towards Billy, actually. Absolutely. We should say the racism in this film is truly shocking, and it's all the more important in those moments to remember that this film is based on history. Mm -hmm. The Aboriginal people were nearly wiped out over the years by British colonists and others. They endured shocking atrocities, and they were viewed as less than human. Seeing that in this film is truly rough, truly hard to see. But it's important for us to confront that history sometimes. Yeah, I totally agree. And seeing that Claire falls into that proves a really powerful and difficult point, honestly. You know, she doesn't realize at first that not only do they have a common enemy, but they have common experiences, you know, in being marginalized and surviving trauma, at least. You know, I don't think the film compares their experiences really so much as it just seems to say that there is some solidarity among the suffering and and the survivors but the road getting there is certainly rough there is a lot of distrust between billy and claire for a while and a lot of confusion between them about each of their roles it stings every time claire derisively calls billy boy yeah this film really hammers home the the racism behind like that simple act of, of just labeling someone that way. You know, brief side tangent here. Hawkins also hires an Aboriginal man to help him travel across the wilderness because they openly say that white people, they don't know what they're doing there. Duh. So this older man, hair, very clearly white, older dude, right? 
His name is Charlie, Uncle Charlie. Hawkins intentionally calls him boy over and over again. It's completely degrading, and he does it so, so much. And even this little white boy traveling with their crew, even this little orphan, he's treated with more respect. He's treated like more of a human, less like a boy even than this aboriginal man. And that says it all for me right there. Like the boy earned the respect that Charlie could never have just by being born white. That was all it took. That's a chilling point, and it's true. Still, when we see Hawkins and his crew of soldiers acting this way, at least we expect it to some degree. With Claire, it stings a bit more. Having seen her suffering, we want to sympathize with her, but she really dehumanizes Billy. Again, it's just another example of the ways in which the film is challenging and not willing to leave you with any easy answers. Even in the so-called villains, right? The gentleman who is responsible for the death of the baby, uh, not Hawkins, the younger soldier, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, I think his name is Yago. Yeah, right, Yago, whatever, yeah. So that guy, uh, that character is played, uh, that character especially, actually, is, is very uncomfortably nuanced, you know, in that he seems to be pretty much just destroyed by guilt over his and the other soldiers' actions. Yeah, the performance from Harry Greenwood really shows a lot of vulnerability for a character that is so monstrous. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's a tough pill to swallow. Now, Yago, whatever his name is, he's the first person that Claire actually catches up to with a loaded rifle, seething with rage, wanting nothing but revenge. And at this point, we, the audience, we want the same thing. This film has been full of so much suffering, and the journey through the woods has been so arduous and so disorienting. For justice to be within grasp, we are practically begging for it as an audience. But once again here, Jennifer Kent doesn't give us something so easy and simple as catharsis. As we said, she wants to show us the horrors of war and violence, and that violence is just further horror that does not satisfy the way we expect or want it to. That is very much Jennifer Kent's point with this film, or one of them. Totally, and as a result, this scene is also extremely tough to get through. One of the things I really liked about this scene is that it made killing someone look really horrible and difficult. Yeah. No satisfying headshot, just a sloppy rifle hit to the shoulder and stomach area. And his screaming is just horrible. Then she can't reload and she doesn't know what to do. Yeah, and this is when we get really up close and personal and that this is where stuff really gets ugly. (laughs) There is some horrific knife-stabbing sequences here, but it's really when she bashes his face in with the rifle, but over and over and over again that we really truly see how horrible it is. I think before he gets knocked out, he calls out for his mother. He does, yeah. Another horrifying, you know, humanizing moment that really gets in the way of any sort of satisfaction or catharsis that anyone could get out of the scene. You know, it may be happening to a horrible person, but this is still a scene that is portrayed as horrifying. And damaging to Claire. One of my favorite parts of the film, and perhaps some of the scariest for me, were the nightmare sequences. Yeah. They were chilling, and they showed that Claire had guilt over killing the soldier. Yeah, I loved those sequences. It's when you can see that Kent still has, you know, those horror chops. You know, she's just using them very tastefully. But there are some dreamy film aesthetics in these sequences that kind of harken back to some of the Babadook stuff that's really satisfying to see and just shows how talented Kent really is. 
Another bit of proof as to how it affects her is that when Claire has a chance to shoot Hawkins later, she can't bring herself to do it. Yep. It's true. And I could feel the frustration in the theater <laughs> during that scene, despite how horrifying literally every portrayal of death had been in the film up until that point. It, it, you know, it's incredible how powerful that desire for, you know, whatever that is, justice, retribution, whatever, you know, it's amazing how strong that is and how it plays with our expectations despite everything. You know, I really do think that is also one of the points of the film. For sure. But it makes just as strong a point about breaking the cycle of violence with Claire's ending when she confronts Hawkins in front of his superior officers and other soldiers and calls him out for what he's done and then sings a chilling song about loss and remembrance to a silent room. That that scene is so incredible, so effective. Yeah, we should say the music in this film is incredible. You know, Claire's voice in particular. It's just so beautiful, so haunting. Just hearing her sing a cappella, she has the perfect tone yeah, for it. Yeah, she really does for those Irish ballads and everything. But, you know, Billy, too, honestly, with his songs, uh, same thing. It's so chilling. But his have tones of kind of like hope in them as well. And I honestly love that. Again, first time this language has been on a major film. But in that scene, through her nonviolent approach... Claire finally frees herself from the cycle of violence Hawkins and the British colonists pulled her into. It's an incredibly powerful moment. <sighs> okay, well, let's talk about the fact that Billy eventually chooses violence in the end anyway. True. I think that goes back to the talk they have around the fire about punishing bad people in culture. Mm. Billy tells the story of how his people attempt to rehabilitate or make connections with people who are bad or cause trouble. Yeah. But after a certain point, Billy says the only solution is to kill them. And with how he takes revenge on the soldiers, it's clear he does believe that. Right. Well, I, I forget where I read this, but someone made the point that this film argues that violence is, you know, a horribly destructive force that will haunt and ruin you and others and perpetuate further violence and suffering. And yet sometimes it is either necessary or people believe it to be so, despite all of this. Yeah. And that is one of the tragedies of this film. Yeah. One of many. Uh, so, Allie, what moments stuck out to you along the course of this journey that Billy and Claire take together across the wilderness. One in particular is when Billy first realizes that Claire hasn't had exactly a great life either. Yeah. And realizes that she's not an English woman. She is, in fact, Irish. Yeah. I think it's really cute that he says you are Ireland. Yeah, I really like the way he says that. And I that scene is definitely one of the most powerful ones in the film when they both start talking in their native tongue. They're both talking in their languages, just cursing the British, you know, over and over. And we really get Billy's backstory in that scene and all the trauma that him and his people have endured. You know, it's so it really is a powerful bonding moment. It's, it's a moment that bonds them close together. You're totally right. And shortly after that moment, they take turns singing a song in their respective languages as well. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's true. But I think at this point in the film, Claire actually says she doesn't like the way Billy's song sounds. Yeah, <laughs> but it's still cute. It's and still uplifting. cute. It's a bonding moment for sure. Uh, any other moments that stuck out to you off the top of your head? Wow. Um, let's see. Another scene that really stood out to me was 
when Hawkins and his men were in the woods and they stumbled across an aboriginal woman yeah her sexual assault her reaction to it yeah was so strikingly similar to claire's just the the devastation and the concern for her child yeah yeah that that scene is really rough it's the same thing the pov shots and everything how rough that is and it's really a brutal scene and it kind of reminds me of a scene that impacted me the she gets separated from her child and we never find out what happens. We, I assume that the kid's just lost forever in the woods because when the uh, people come later to save the woman, the kid is not with them. So, you know, for me, it just reminded me a lot of like, uh, you know, just what's happening right now, you know, in our country, you know, people being separated from children, stuff like that. Like it's almost, I know that it couldn't have been a commentary on that because of when the film came out, but how chilling that it is repeated in our culture in such a way around the same time. It's awful. Yeah, but as far as, geez, other scenes, you know, one for me is you know, towards the end of the film, uh, Claire and Billy get taken in by this older couple, right, when they're walking along the road near the town. And, uh, you know, the older man, he uh, he's really nice to them, and he offers to, like, feed them and, you know, let them you know, take showers or bath <laughs> showers <laughs> in the 1800s. That doesn't exist yet. Baths or whatever, clean themselves. But anyway, so there's this scene around the dinner table. They're having dinner that night. I don't know if you remember this scene, Allie. But, um, you know, Billy, as an aboriginal man, he's eating away from the table. And this old guy, to try and be nice, he says, you know, you can eat with us at the table, despite the fact that his, his wife protests. But he says, you can eat with us at the table. And it's supposed to be this moment or whatever. It seems like it's this moment where this man is showing them kindness when they've been treated so cruelly throughout the entire course of the film. But do you remember what Billy's reaction is? Does he turn it down? No, he sits with them, but he starts crying and he says, this is my country. This is my home. It's like, dude, this this guy, he's a colonist himself, dude. This is Billy's home. He can't sit at the fucking table, dude. And this is the biggest act of kindness that anyone has treated them throughout the entire film. It is such a heartbreaking moment. And it's right before that that we learn that basically it's a genocide of the aboriginal people that like everyone in billy's tribe or whatever all of his people his family his friends everything they're all dead and this is the solace that he has he can eat at the dinner table when someone's really nice to him you know i think that that is you know part of the reason why he chooses violence and vengeance at the end of the film because he's coming at it from that totally different perspective so that was one of my personal favorite scenes uh and the other thing it's just a more heartfelt moment is, uh, you know, when they get separated at the end of the film, uh, Billy and Claire, and she's, like, riding on the back of this cart to get into town, and she sees Billy come out of the woods. She jumps off the cart, and they have this moment where they just come face-to-face -face with each other after everything they've been through on this trail, and they just look at each other, and I think Claire is crying, and maybe Billy is a little bit too, and they just share, like, this relieved smile you know, that they're back together. And I think that, you know, even though no words are spoken in that moment, there is so much that is communicated just for those two facial expressions. Again, the brilliance of Jennifer Kent's directing, in my opinion. It's touching. Yeah, it really is. And uh, you know what? I think that that just about does it for us. Uh, Allie, what do you think? Uh, any final thoughts? Well, you know, as I said earlier, you know, frankly, 
I was blown away by this film. It, it was a really powerful experience for me. It left me with a lot to think about, and I, I would recommend it to our listeners. Absolutely. This is the kind of, kind of film which will continue to reveal itself to you with repeated watches if you can stomach that. And for me personally, I, I think I'm feeling a 9 out of 10 on this one. Allie, what about you? Absolutely. 9 out of 10. I feel the same. As I said, haunting and beautiful, despite the tragedy within it and the tragedy which it covers. It is a challenging film, but it is a challenge worth taking. Yeah, you know, I'll say this film only solidifies my position as a massive Jennifer Kent fan. So much respect for that woman and what she has accomplished. Yes, seriously. And uh, that'll be about it for us. So, have any of you seen The Nightingale? And if so, what did you think? Did we miss any moments of yours that you thought were really stand out? Let us know on Twitter, at SpookyGuyDan or at SpookSquadPod. Follow us on Instagram, at SpookSquadPodcast. Or shoot us an email at SpookSquadPodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yes, please. We want to get to know you all. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, folks. From Spook Squad, this is Dan. And Allie. Signing out. (laughs) 